Paul writes, if anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his suffering by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on making it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full assurance. Amen. Growing up, my grandmother always had certain jokes that she liked to tell her grandchildren. And as a kid, I never quite understood them, but I knew that they were jokes so that I was supposed to laugh. One of them was, when they were handing out brains, I thought they said trains, and so I didn't get any. Another was a joke that I hear her say in my mind every time I hear this morning's passage from Paul. She would say, I'm so far behind that I think I'm first. And now I should apologize because writing this down this week made me realize that her sense of humor has found its way through the generations to me. Most weeks, you all, as a captive audience, are earning more jewels in your crown listening to my sad attempts at humor. Again, I apologize. I'm so far behind I think I'm first. It's not quite exactly what Paul's talking about, but you get the point. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the, uh, of, for the prize of the heavenly call of God through Christ Jesus. It makes you wonder, doesn't it? What is it that Paul wants to leave behind? One of the fantasies I've always had about moving, whether it's jobs or schools or houses, is that when you get to a new place, you get to recreate yourself. You get to be a new person. If you were shy before, now you can be the life of the party. If you were a loudmouth, now you can learn to listen. If you struggled with anger or addiction or had a reputation that haunted you, you get a clean slate and get to start all over. It makes me wonder what it is that Paul wants to forget. 
What is it about his past life that was so horrible that he wants to leave it behind? The answer might surprise you. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul intends to leave behind are all good things that have defined who he is, his status, his achievements, one of the chosen people of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrews, Hebrew, a law-abiding citizen, a Pharisee. And despite all the bad connotations we associate with that word, to be a Pharisee means that you believe the Bible and you follow the Bible. This is not a list of character flaws like snoring at night or chewing with your mouth open or obnoxious behavior or intolerance. No, these are all good things. Let me put it, if I can, into East Tennessee vernacular. It would be like him saying, I went to Bearden High School and graduated as the valedictorian. I went on to Vanderbilt undergrad where I was top of my class and then to Harvard Law. My mother is a two-time chair of the board of the Knoxville Symphony League, and my grandfather was a moderator of the Presbytery of East Tennessee. And that's just on my maternal side. On my, mother's side, or on my father's side, my great-grandfather was the president of the University of Tennessee. After he served in World War II, he was awarded the Bronze Star and later received the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the key to the city of Knoxville. I'm the president of the board at Maryville College. I teach the junior high Sunday school class at church. I believe the Bible and I try to follow its teachings. And I chaired the last capital campaign. But then Paul goes on to say, and none of that is worth squat compared to the value of what I have now. Because Paul realized that he had been running for the wrong prize. And, and in fact, that he had been running in the wrong direction. He could have just as easily written, it turns out I was so far behind, I thought I was first. In 1964, in an NFL game, Minnesota Vikings defensive lineman Jim Marshall scooped up a fumble by a San Francisco 49er receiver and saw daylight ahead of him. None of the opposing team's red uniforms stood between him and the end zone, some 60 yards away. So he took off running as fast as a big defensive lineman can go, churning in his purple helmet and purple pants and white jersey, dreams of the touchdown dance in his head. He heard the crowd roaring behind him. He saw his teammates running alongside him, waving their arms on the sideline. He cruised the last few yards into the end zone and celebrated by throwing the ball into the, into the stands and triumphantly doing a little dance. Then a player on the other team walked up and gave him a big hug and his eyes were open. You see, Jim Marshall had run the wrong way into the wrong end zone and scored two points for the other team. If you look it up on YouTube, which I did this week, and watch the television replay, you hear the announcer yelling over and over, he's running the wrong way. Marshall is running the wrong way. The only person in the entire stadium that didn't realize Jim Marshall was running the wrong way was Jim Marshall. Jim Marshall. 
Marshall was like the man driving down the highway whose wife called him on his cell phone to tell him to watch out because she had heard on the news that there was a crazy person driving the wrong way down the highway. The man replied, you're not kidding, honey. There's not just one crazy person going the wrong way. I'm passing hundreds of them. (laughs) Paul realizes he's been running the wrong way and he's reached the end zone. He thought he had been so successful in running the wrong way, he thought he was first. But his were hollow victories. The kind of success that if you keep having them, they're going to leave you feeling defeated in the end. But if you know the story of Saul and how he became Paul in the book of Acts, then you know that Christ knocked him on his keister. And Ananias came and gave him a big hug and opened his eyes to the truth. Paul had a come to Jesus moment, literally, and it changed his life and the direction he was running. More than that, Paul says, more than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The problem is most of us When we get knocked off our high horse, we get back up and keep heading in the same direction. And even if our direction happens to change, we rarely demonstrate the kind of single-minded focus that Paul is talking about. If you ever went to church camp as a kid, odds are good that you sang the song, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I did. I sang that song around the campfire at Westminster Woods in the coastal redwood forest of Northern California. Most of the young campers around the fire were sincere, sometimes teary-eyed, with the tall wooden cross glowing in the firelight. We would promise that from that moment on, we'd stand firm in our faith, just as Paul has done, just as he had admonished the Philippians to do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. It never lasted, of course. Once we got back home, there, were, there was the allure of sports teams or gossip or grades, and our determination got sidetracked, and we spent less time following than getting lost along the way. The truth is, when it comes to following Jesus, The better metaphor for most of us comes from what Bill just read from our passage in Luke. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and yet you were not willing. You were not willing. Hurting cats, in other words. The mother hen senses that danger is near and starts clucking for all she's worth. But the chicks will have none of it. They're scurrying around the barnyard, running wildly in every direction, every direction that is, but home. In the gospel text today, a group of Pharisees warn Jesus that Herod is planning to kill him. We know something about Herod already from the birth narratives. 
The ruler who was so enraged by the news that a child had been born king of the Jews, which Herod thought he was, that he ordered the massacre of all male children under the age of two. That particular Herod, Herod the Great, died the same year that Jesus was born, but this Herod, Herod Antipas, is his son. And as the saying goes, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Herod Antipas has already shown what he's capable of, you may remember, by brutally beheading John the Baptist. Herod wants to kill you, the Pharisees tell Jesus. But back in chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus has already set his face towards Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. In other words, he knows what awaits him, and he will not be intimidated or deterred. No turning back. No turning back. Tell that fox Herod, Jesus says. And it's no coincidence in his choice of words. Tell that fox Herod that today I'm casting out demons and maybe tomorrow I'll perform some miraculous cures, but on the third day, my work is finished. We know the story well enough to know that on the third day, something happens. Something neither Herod, nor Pilate, nor Caesar's army, nor all the legions of hell could stop. On the third day, I finish my work. Then Jesus turns his attention to us. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. If you've ever loved someone you could not protect, then you understand the depths of Jesus' lament. All you can do is open your arms. You can't make anyone walk into them. Meanwhile, this is the most vulnerable posture in the world. Wings spread, breast exposed. But if you mean what you say like Jesus, this is how you stand. Given the vast array of metaphors available, it's odd that Jesus would liken liken himself to a mother hen. There are plenty of biblical precedent for other animal images. The mighty eagle of Exodus, for instance, or the stealthy leopard of Hosea, or the proud lion of Judah. He could have suggested a rooster even with those razor-sharp spikes on the back of his heels, a rooster who will peck hard and peck first. If you've ever had a close encounter with a rooster, you know what I mean. But a hen is what Jesus Jesus chooses, which, if you think about it, is pretty typical. Jesus is always turning things upside down. So that children end up on top while kings are on the bottom and the last are paid first and the losers win. So of course, he doesn't pick any of those strong, brawny, muscular metaphors. He likens himself to a fretting hen, which is about as far away from a fox as you can get. A hen's cheap purpose in life is to protect her young. Several years ago, I heard a story about a picture, a picture of a bird found after a forest fire that had died sitting on her nest. Even when she had the chance, she refused to fly away to safety. 
Underneath her wings, firefighters found six baby chicks still alive. She protected them by covering them and giving her life for theirs. Jesus isn't the king of the jungle in this or any other story. What he is is a mother hen who stands between the chicks and those who mean to do them harm. She has no fangs. She has no claws, no rippling muscles. All she has is her willingness to shield her babies with her own body. If the fox wants them, he's going to have to kill her first, which he does. He slides up next to her one night in the yard while all the babies are asleep. When her cry awakens them, they all scatter. She dies the next day where both foxes and chickens can see her wings spread, breast exposed, without a single chick beneath her feathers. It breaks her heart, but it doesn't change a thing. Because if you mean what you say, then this is how you stand. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? If you mean what you say, then this is how you die. No turning back. No turning back. Amen.